Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Starwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to El Inkstained Retros, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right, by the way, with the American news media. Hello, hello, I missed you. (laughs) How was your vacay? Beyond excellent. It was great to be in West Virginia. It was great to go and have my kids and Jessica's kids see, be, hang out to get to play host in West Virginia. You know how much I love being from West Virginia and love what I still consider my home state. It was beyond great. And the thing that I think other people don't know, West Virginia is scenically beautiful, shockingly scenically beautiful. The most beautiful state east of the Mississippi. By the way, just so everyone knows, Chris went to like the bougiest place in all of West Virginia. So don't don't yet. Don't get like, you know, thinking he was like living off the land in West Virginia. Well, that's not the only thing. West Virginia isn't all eating grubs from out out from underneath a tree. We have we have hotels, we have golf courses. West Virginia is a very beautiful, nice place to be. And to say nothing of the ski resorts and all of that other jazz. But anyway, what people don't understand about West Virginia is how nice West Virginians are, how kind, how pleasant, how just oh wonderful. Lord. Okay, it's true. They're nicer than Minnesotans, and Minnesotans are very well, nice. I, I, I would dispute that. The Minnesota niceness has menace in it <laughs> because if you're They're not just passive aggressive, exactly. like icy cold people, I have like two friends from high school who I keep in touch with. If, if you Maybe were, that says more about my niceness than than the niceness of Minnesota's but I like to think not. I think there was so the Bar- Michael Barone's regional term was rule following Scandinavians. Yeah, for, for I am a, so not a rule follower. My husband and I fight about this all the time. He is like such a rule following ninny, and when I was pregnant. You know, the no sushi, we're, we're boarding no, yeah. no, we're boarding a plane. Well, all of that too, but we're boarding a plane and they're like, you know, people who need more time. So of course I'm like, I'm getting on the plane and he's like, Oh, we're group three, we're group three, so we can't do this. And I'm like, Oh, God forbid you might have, you know, a slightly awkward. Were you interaction very with- were you very pregnant? No. But, <laughs> but So what you're saying is you demanded that he when you were not visibly pregnant. Yeah. Cut basically, you were like, Cut We're taking line. a handicap spot, and is what you so said. So I was like, I'll see you on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> he totally stayed back, and I totally went on. He is a rule follower. That he is, is that is definitely a rule follower. So you guys average out to a, a, a balanced perspective on these things. Yeah. But West, uh, our West, daughter will be exposed to both and get to decide what suits her better. West Virginians are not rule followers. Barone's political typology for Appalachia is the Jacksonian belt. I call it the hillbilly firewall because it is where. Crazy ideas go to die, and and the acts as a blocking effect very often in American politics because West Virginians and Appalachians are not interested. We talked about this a lot during when we were talking about vaccine oh, uh, resistance. Yeah. People in Appalachia are like, so let me get this straight. You're from the government, and you want to stick. You want to <laughs> stick something in. You want to put your magic juice into my body. Mm, I'm skeptical. It's like, well, you have to do it. It's like, well, then now. I'm definitely not doing. They they were like people 
you know, people have hounded me over the years, but I've never seen Titanic, which I think is a very solid move. I watched the key scene as a young man. I looked it up and saw the key scene. Yes, I've seen it. But the the more people demanded that I you must see Titanic, the more they said it. I was like, nope, now never in my life. Never in my life will I ever watch this. I'll make it a point. So that's a hillbilly. That is a hillbilly way of being. Well, that I like all of that. You would love the Greenbrier, and you would love. I have any, never been there. I feel like the more people tell me I have to go to the Greenbrier, the more I'm like, well, okay, I don't want. I'm, I'll I, just stick with the Four Seasons. I thought I, I thought about this while we were there, which was I hope more people. I was like, oh, I hope more people come to the Greenbrier, and I was like, not too many more no, people. No, <laughs> not too many more people. No, you want to keep it for yourself. That's right. Well, we have two weeks of material to catch up on. Much excellence. Oh, and I really enjoyed, by the way your interview last week that was so good i hope i hope anybody who missed it should go back and listen interview with walter russell mead excellent 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 well done author of ark of the covenant available Mm -hmm. on amazon okay (laughs) on the front page we have primary coverage this is this is your sweet spot chris i was struck by the volume of attention that the kansas ballot referendum on abortion got which there was kansas has a constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right to abortion and there was a ballot initiative that would have repealed that amendment allowing legislators to legislate on the matter and that amendment was rejected so a a victory for the pro-choice side of this issue let's play a clip from Morning Joe on Wednesday, the day after the primaries. See just a flavor of how that was covered. Uh, You know, I think back to Doug Jones and what that indicated. I think back uh, in in to when Teddy Kennedy's seat was won by a Republican, uh, what that suggested was going to happen in 2010. Uh, And I'm not suggesting a blue wave in 2010. I am suggesting, though, looking at these results from last night, which I just the the margins astounding uh, that Republicans have a hell of a problem, especially in suburban America. Yeah, it's massive, Joe. I mean, I think, you know, you sometimes get um, these kind of auguries, these omens, you know, where it's like something happens that foretells as you were talking about these various things portended what would happen later. Chris, your take? I mean, I think obviously Heilman is a little sounds sounds a little breathy about it, but I think Scarborough is substantially right. You know, I'm I'm looking at here's the problem, and I'm writing about this from the Starwaldism's note this week. So sorry for anybody who's going to get a double dose, but basically it's like this: in 2018, Donald Trump was 11.4 points underwater at this point, and this week. And Democrats led in the generic ballot by 7.9 points. Joe Biden, in the most recent News Nation poll, Decision Desk HQ had a great poll out for us at News Nation. Joe Biden's down 14.4 points. That's a lot of points, more than Donald Trump at this point. And Democrats are up in the poll by 1.2 points. And this, some, there's something broken. And if you, we went and looked at my uh, new research assistant, Nate Moore, Shout out, Nate. And readers, please, please feel free to help me come up with a nickname for Nate Moore. Nate Dog has been used too much in his life, so. By the way, it was great. Uh, we got here this morning, and Chris immediately sends Nate off to do real work while we do the <laughs> podcast. Like, Nate, you have work to do. Well, this is this is, this is is star intern Abby Black's final 
moment. She should have she should have this all to herself. Yeah. But Nate and I went back and looked at what was the performance like in previous midterms. This is an anomaly. Something's going on, and I want to just bore you with one other political fact that support that would support the. Okay, what does that mean? Something's going on. Well, here let, let me let me give you these numbers. And I had seen these, but a friend of mine who's a Kansan and a listener, so thank you, also gave me the, took it a little deeper. 200,581 voted for that abortion, uh, voted on the abortion amendment who did not vote in their, in either party's Senate primary. 182,000 did the same for the governor's race. So think about this. 200,000 people who do not care enough about either party to vote in the Senate primary or the the gubernatorial primary of their own state, punched the ballot initiative and walked out of the polling booth. That is freaky. And that is, look, the Kansans were, the, 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 the people trying to do this were going uphill because it's hard to prove a negative. You say to voters, hey, take this safety off, this firearm, but I promise I won't shoot you with it. So if they had been saying, replace this with that, we want to replace, they would have had a better chance if they were saying, we want to replace this with an amendment that says abortion is only legal after the 12th week or something like that, like they have in Florida or Georgia, it would have done a lot better. But I would just say for a lot of reasons, but I think we have not yet fully calculated the consequences of the Dobbs decision on the electorate. And it's going to take weeks for this for us to really get a, a grip on it. And I, as a, as a person who's into forecasting, saw those those two hundred thousand extra voters in Kansas. Basically, a third it, it grew the electorate by a third. That's definitely weird and different. I agree that we have not fully calculated the effect of the decision on the electorate, which is why I find these like over the top professions that like this is a boon for Democrats and a blue wave or, or I mean they said we're not going to call it a blue wave but like you know, approach hey, yeah. that you have like blue wave adjacent is how could you possibly say that and I think having I'm not actually not surprised by the outcome of this ballot initiative but I think having a straight up or down referendum on the ballot is very different from voters going Absolutely. to the polls and voting for a Democratic candidate over a Republican candidate or a Republican candidate over a Democratic candidate and being able to say based on this ballot initiative how that's going to translate we don't uh, know. in this environment and then how abortion is going to stack up relative to all the other issues in play for the midterms, particularly given like how the candidates talk about those issues. Like, it's just really complex. And I think the certainty with which we saw a lot of, like, writing about this, that, like, okay, there's going to be some kind of translation about this in November is is not quite right. I'm just I'm just not sure. Like, maybe it will really help Dems in November, but it's, it's complicated. I, think, I, I just don't know. I, certainly for the House, it's going to have a mitigated effect because it's harder to pull the connection – all the way through, but for the Senate and for gubernatorial races, this is a plus for Democrats. We don't know how much, but the the takeaway from Kansas, I think you're 100% right. A ballot initiative is different, uh, but if I'm John Fetterman, if I'm Raphael Warnock, if I'm Tim Ryan, if I'm Mark Kelly, if I'm 
what's his name, who misspells his last name from Colorado, Bennett, or Catherine Cortez Masto, I'm looking at this and saying, huh, okay, there's some juice, right? This this has some smack. And for the Senate, it, they can. it's much easier to make it referendum in the Senate on Roe because they're going to confirm the next justice of the Supreme Court. What do we got next? Oh. Excellence. Okay. A, uh, a pile of excellence. Also, what is your – I pulled this Washington Post piece. The headline was – Several election deniers backed by Trump oh. prevail in hotly oh. contested primaries uh, by Hannah Knowles in the Washington Post. There was no mention of these election deniers, Carrie Lake in Arizona, the gubernatorial candidate, or John Gibbs in Michigan being bankrolled by the Democrats. Did, did she not mention that in the story? Not mentioned Meh. in the story. That, is, that story has even gone mainstream. Uh, that that is, has gone totally mainstream. Yep. That, totally mainstream. Well, here's here's my beef on that stuff. Uh, but oh, go ahead. I, I was going to ask you, like, another thing I'm I'm not sure about is the extent of like how how important is a Trump endorsement? How influential does Trump remain in the party? I think it's hard to like my you know my opinion, but I don't put much stock in it. Is like I think it does help on the margins, like you know, OBS and. Uh, Oz and McCormick, that was real close in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I think Trump probably helped Oz. Well, I think he, it's he, probably helpful, but it doesn't seem to me like, I don't know, I guess I guess it helps. But again, I think it's like just harped on in the press, like more than it actually, more than its impact actually is in these races. Well, you know, my mantra on this is the only thing that Donald Trump, the mainstream press and the Democratic Party agree on. Yeah. Other other than protectionism and against free trade, I guess. No, is that Donald Trump should be the topic of every political story a hundred percent of the time. So here here's what I here here was what I saw. We knew Peter Meyer, congressman from Western Michigan, from the wooden shoe crowd, as I like to call them in Western Michigan, that Peter Meyer was gonna have a hard time because he voted to impeach Donald Trump. He voted his conscience and voted to impeach Donald Trump. So we knew he was going to problem. As you say, Democrats helped out as much as they certainly could to try to win this real flake, this super kooky guy who will potentially lose. If you can lose the House district that includes Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is like the most Republican part, it's the, it is the, it is Jerry Ford country, Republican ancestral homeland. Uh, if you can lose that part, you've really done something, but the district is more competitive now, blah, 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 blah. You know what didn't get mentioned in this story? Two other candidates who voted in favor of impeaching Donald Trump from Washington State won, and they won. So the headline is, impeachment voter loses, loser, Peter Meyer, you suck. And then nobody's like, oh, Jamie Herrera Butler, and what's the other guy, help me, What's the other guy from Washington? I'm forgetting. It's it's Washington three and Washington four. They're adjacent districts. I'm sorry, Congressman. It's a, a new house, new field, new something. I'm sorry. I'm sure you're a great congressman. But they new house. We've got you're Colin right. Colin coming in from way downtown. Oh, by the way, listeners, we're gonna we're not gonna get through this entire episode without talking about what we've learned about Colin today. Here's your deep tease. It involves purchasing vintage shirts online. So get brace yourself. Pack up the Subaru. But the story is not about, huh, two out of three succeeded. It is the one who lost. Now, I understand we don't report on the planes that land. We only report on the ones that crash, and I get why that's important. 
but there's such little perspective in all of this of the desire to make everything about Trump. And this is, Eliana, of a piece with what you're- And that he has a lot of influence. And and, and is of a piece with what you were talking about as it relates to how, how the media talks, is also how Democrats think about these issues. The press- I, I guess it's in both their commercial interest and their ideological, or you can rationalize an ideological interest if you are a left person who works in the press, that pointing to Donald Trump is somehow your civic duty and you shouldn't ignore him. I don't know, but it's way out of, it's way out of whack. Up next. Harumph. Harumph. Up next, developments at CNN. Oh. This is actually my story. Oh. My story about CNN President Chris Licht working to win back, lure back a neglected audience for the network. We should, before you begin, let me say, yes. avid listener David Drucker described CNN as your beat uh, <laughs> on being stained wretches. Uh, and I was like, that's true. She is, uh, on, she is, on, the, she is on the licked beat. David Drucker, I hope that you still have friends after uh, Chris <laughs> outed you like that. But anyhow. Drucker um, has only friends. Anyhow, he... Sat in a room, Chris Licht, the other Chris, sat Mm -hmm. in a room in the Capitol, asked Republican lawmakers to come and talk with him. They did so at length, and his message was basically, we want to win back your trust. Mm -hmm. We want you to come back on the air. If producers invite you back on, I hope you will accept. I will praise them for inviting you. I will criticize them and send them mean notes if they ambush you with stupid questions. And he was pressed on, well, you know, isn't the isn't CNN workforce going to express outrage if this is done? And his message was basically just, I'm in charge. They report to me. We don't care about the ratings. This is a matter of public trust. And it just seemed to me that, like, a couple of things. Like, first, it's very hard when you're trying to win back Republicans to unwind the things that a lot of these sure. an- the on-air partisanship that happened over the past, like, for to six years. So, you know, Jake Tapper or Brianna Keelar or Don Lemon can invite you on, but like these people have basically said that you're you're a treasonous traitor. Right. And I think it's really really hard to do without bringing in some new fresh faces. I appreciate the effort though. I think that's a good, I mean, A that, for effort. Yeah, that's a that's a we'll we'll as we've said all along, we'll see when does he start? He started in April. Oh, but I thought there was still some lag before. No, the, he, he start, he's he's, all, he's he, there. His, yep. He's got his hands on yep. the wheel. I appreciate the effort. I think the outreach is a, is a good sign. I take that as an encouraging sign that he was willing to spend time and talk to these people because CNN, some of the anchors got themselves into a position, and I don't care about the opinion people. I, you know, Don Lemon going to have whatever he want to have on his show. That's fine. That's great. But the... News side people who took, this is when it was like, do you remember there was a thing where they came, it was ProPublica or somebody said that if you donated to the NRCC, that you were donating to election, you were you were supporting election denial because the money that goes yeah, to the Yeah, yeah, of course. And you're like, well, I don't think we can say that. I don't think that's right. So I think some of the shows on CNN took those stances, which made it hard to book people with who were in leadership, book people who were in important roles in shaping the national debate. So good on them. Well, okay, A for effort. I think he was met with, you know, quite a bit of skepticism. And we'll see what happens. 
kind of hard to do with that, you know, <laughs> with with the present team. Well, and but you and, have you have an item also here, which, and we saw. Well, we got that CNNer Chris Cuomo pop his head up in your neck of the woods. This is true. While I was on vacation, News Nation signed Chris Cuomo. His show debuts, I believe, in October, and great for him. People ask me how I felt about that, and I don't. I, I hope I hope he's very successful, and I appreciate he did an interview with Dan Abrams where he mea culpa on what he did when he was at the, for obviously if you're listening to this podcast, you know, because we, we covered the brothers Cuomo to a fair thee well, but Chris Cuomo helped his brother try to beat the rap on the sexual misconduct and mistreatment of women as governor. And he recognized that that was an error. I don't think it was an error of political bias I think it was a thoughtlessness. I think it. I think it was a stupid thing to do, and I hope he has a great show. I hope he. I hope he has a lot of fun. He said he wants to be fair. The standards for being fair are certainly different for a primetime opinion kind of show than it is for straight news. And I'm. I'm okay. I hope he does well. The chaser to my Chris Licht apology tour to Republicans shot is the New York Times story headlined. Profits slump at CNN as ratings plummet. And part of Chris Licht's message when he was on the Hill was that they are not paying attention to ratings because most of their revenue at CNN comes from cable subscription fees. And so, you know, advertising money can go down because they have these subscription fees. So the New York Times article says, however, the numbers are crunched inside CNN. The hunt is on for new revenue. To help solve the financial puzzle, Mr. Licht has tapped Chris Marlin, a longtime friend who, I'll get there, <laughs> who was recently an executive at the Florida home builder Lennar, Lennar? I don't know Lennar, how to pronounce Lennar. it, Lennar. Mr. Marlin, whom some employees have taken to calling Fishman, Fishman, a takeoff on his surname, had no experience operating a cable news network, having worked at the law firms fully in Lardner and Holland and I. I love how it's like, oh, you know, he has no experience. How he has no experience. Do this except yet? for having been an attorney at yeah. large and important law firms um, and working inside big organizations. Okay, so, but this did amuse me. Mr. Marlin has floated a variety of revenue-generating ideas since joining CNN, including striking advertising deals with major tech companies like Microsoft. I mean... <laughs> How did he think of that? Uh, Hey, wait a minute. Have you guys thought about partnering with any of these tech firms? (laughs) He's also mentioned selling sponsorships to corporate underwriters. (laughs) This guy is a genius. I don't know where they found him. Have I ever told you the story of, 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 first of all, Mr. Marlin sounds like a children's cartoon character. And if I were him, I would lean in on Fishman. I would be like, Fishman. Yes, totally. But when I was at Fox... We had to do a ill-conceived and poorly executed partnership with Microsoft, and their search engine was called what's it? What was it called? Bing, Bing. Oh my gosh, I remember this. Bing. Yeah. And they had a product called Bing Pulse that, in the deal, was going to appear on Special Report, and so as part of like a tracker on the bottom of the show that was going to track sentiment. Blah, 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 blah. It looked like a dog's breakfast. It was hideously ugly, and it said nothing. It was just like, oh, here it is. And I forget how many weeks this had to go on. But one of the other things that was part of the deal was that we partnered with Microsoft on whatever. Get this. When we were talking about... (laughs) 
when we were talking about it, I remember Shannon Bream and I were doing- I'm like already laughing about this. Shannon Bream and I are doing this thing at the board where we're like, what did Bing Pulse have to say? I don't know. So as you're saying Bing Pulse, you feel like a silly person anyway. But that it was, we, we wouldn't, we'd tell people not to Google something. We'd tell them to bing it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. Okay, so that might be coming soon to CNN where they're going to be telling people to bing it. But the last part was actually my favorite. So he, aside from striking at his ideas that they should strike an advertising deal with a major tech company like Microsoft or selling sp- or sell sponsorships to corporate underwriters, his third idea was that they should extend the brand in China. Ugh. So I'm sure that will go great. I'm sure that G will be very excited about that and have a lot of ideas about how he he could use the CNN brand to further. I'm sure he has a lot of messages he'd like to get out under the CNN brand. So other than the nickname Fishman, my favorite part of this story is that there is something called CNN underscored, an e-commerce initiative. Does this mean that you can buy the things you see on CNN? I don't know. Because ABC, let's, wait, Good Morning America is now this. basically the home shopping network. CNN like, underscored. Let's see. Oh, oh no. It's product reviews. It's like wire cutter. Product reviews, deals, and buying uh, guys. I would love it if it was like, want to buy Anderson Cooper's tight t-shirts? Uh, right here. Twenty-two. Yeah. They're $22 a here, piece. Here are the headlines. Um Keep your dorm rooms, keep your dorm spotless with these twenty-five items under twenty-five dollars. I would probably be interested in those items. So it's Buzzfeedy. A quality rice cooker is, but I love wire cutter at the Times thing. A quality rice cooker is a kitchen essential here, two worth your money. But do you buy through wire cutter? No, I'll go there if I'm like looking for. Okay, when you have a baby, you buy like ten thousand things, and I'm like best baby X, and then wire cutter comes up. I look through, and then I. You can't buy it through the New York Times. What the difference, I assume, with this is that you click through to, to purchase it. I do not click through. You do not. I don't like giving them the revenue. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because yeah. we're the, you know why? Because we're the worst. Okay. Okay. What do we have next? Oh, I thought this was really interesting. A New York mag piece by David Friedlander. Mm-hmm. This was super interesting. And it's like the kind of piece I wish I had written. Headline, Why Republicans Stop Talking to the Press. Subhead is a quote, I just don't see the point, said an advisor to a GOP presidential aspirant. And I just want to read a little bit from it because I think it captured like an actual media trend that we're seeing. More than a dozen GOP campaign operatives, senior Hill aides and political reporters from major news outlets say the past few years have brought something new, actively courting the media's scorn while avoiding anything that may be viewed as consorting with the enemy. Um, And then further down in the piece, he writes, we are at the same point now in the 2024 election cycle. And again, two fistfuls of Republicans are making noises about running for president. But that kind of long look at the life and career of the contenders has been all but absent so far this election cycle. And he's talking about the kind of long profiles that were written in 2016 and 2015. And I did lots of those at National Review with the cooperation of the candidates, save for a recent time profile of Glenn Youngkin, still considered a long shot for a 2024 run. The closest we've seen to what used to be a staple of political journalism is a long New Yorker profile of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis one in which the subject didn't participate, a previously almost unheard of press strategy for a presidential aspirant. And it is not just the pre-presidential campaign profile that is suffering from a lack of Republican engagement. Increasingly, even simple news stories from national newspapers and wire services will feature a direct quote from a Democrat, but just a tweet or a line from a speech by a Republican typically assign the latter decline to respond to the reporter. 
and this is a trend that I really see that there is, it comes from what I think is a complete Republican distrust of contempt for scorn for the media is one, Mm -hmm. but that kind of always existed. And two, a sense that they don't need them. That's right. They don't need them to win races. They don't need the profiles in the New York Times. People reading uh, the Times aren't their voters. They don't need the Post. They don't need the Journal. And in fact, what he picks up on is a sign that, like, if you're getting profiled in the Times and you're playing footsie with them, like, I think Republican voters now see that as a sign that, like, you're not the kind of candidate that we can trust. Do you remember my favorite Time magazine cover? I'm sure I've mentioned it here. Picture of Rand Paul. The cover said, can this man save the Republican Party? He uh, mentions that piece, I think. It's a, a yeah. t- total garb. Just to t- as And as it would turn out, the answer was no, he could not. The old idea was that you could play, you could talk out of both sides of your mouth, right? That you could court this kind of coverage to generate buzz around your candidacy, the namers of names and the listers of lists, because those things have consequences. They really do. And they have consequences for, for people who don't read the news from liberal outlets or mainstream outlets. It has consequences all the way down because people just, why is Ron DeSantis a front runner for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024? For a lot of reasons. But the biggest one is that we talk about him all the time. And as much, conver- and he knew this by his strategy to win the gubernatorial primary against Adam Putnam. Putnam which was go on Fox News as much as you possibly can, do only conservative media, and ignore the rest. And it's a, for a primary strategy, it's good. The reason that we're seeing this phenomenon, great piece, by the way, and thank you for sharing it, the p- real cause of this phenomenon is there's not enough upside in it for the Republicans. There's just not enough upside. Once upon a time when John McCain could become the Republican nominee for president, basically out of the phenomenon of namers of names and listers of lists, John McCain, who used to refer to the press, joking, not joking, as his base. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, on the Straight Talk Express. the That doesn't happen anymore. And part of it goes back to what we were talking about, about the, 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 villain, the vilification of the whole Republican Party, right? which goes to the things about Democrats trying to try, trying to, to uh, do dirty guys like Peter Meyer, people, Republicans of principle and conscience. But I think if you're a Republican, what do you, what do you need these guys for? There's just, there, there's a lot of risk and very little upside. Totally agree. And I, it was a great piece, like very thoughtful and picked up on a real trend that we're seeing. Here's my, what do you, what do you got? Well, here's, I love this. Okay. First I want to re <laughs> so, you know, I have a, I have a thing. If your story is about what people said on the internet, it's not a story. And here, Fox News, here's, I swear, this is actually the headline. Twitter blows up. (laughs) Is Is how the headline for the story begins. Twitter blows up over Kamala Harris introducing herself with she, her pronouns, comma, description of her clothing. And you're like, this is the thirstiest headline ever written. You've packed every, it's like a SEO optimization headline to just like, eh, please click here. And of course, this, the story is what, and I would like people who I don't know and don't care who they are, what they said on Twitter about this. Here's a guy who said this and it was funny and mean. And then people attacked, blah, 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 blah. You're like, what, what are you talking about? You're like, this, what a stupid way to cover the news. 
But wait, it's going to get dumber. Let's listen now to Brian Stelter talk about how Fox talked about this story. That little clip of Kamala Harris doing a self-description during a disability rights meeting on Tuesday uh, caused days of right-wing media reaction and mockery. So the RNC posted the tweet, it went viral on Twitter, and it inspired segments on channels like Fox and Newsmax. It caused so much mockery from people on the right. And I wondered, was there any follow-up news coverage? Did anybody actually interview anyone who was in the room? Does anybody actually know what the story was all about? So we decided to book somebody who was there, an attendee at this event marking the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Let me go ahead and bring them in now. Lydia X. Uh, Z. Brown was in the room. They are the Director of Policy, Advocacy, and External Affairs for the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network. Lydia, welcome to the program. I love the blue suit. Thanks, Brian. It felt like an appropriate choice. Brian Stelter is just shocked that Fox and other channels would talk about this story. He's just shocked. He can't believe it. He, he is... He's shocked. He is not shocked. No. He is, he is like, virtue signaling that... You know, he is pro, pro, that he cares about people with disabilities and, like, understands why people doesn't. say their pronouns. And yes. Fox yes. doesn't. Fox, yes. Those people are bad people. Yes. They don't care about people with disabilities. Here's the thing. If Kamala Harris had described the color of her suit only, it would not have been mocked, I don't think, because, well, I'm sure disingenuous people would have attacked her and said that she'd had a stroke or something. But why did she describe the color of her suit? So that blind people could know so, so that it would be helpful to describe it in some way, I guess. But what's the real story here? The pronouns. The vice pre- at, at a moment where America is having a really intense conversation about pronouns and gender roles and all of that stuff, her opening on that identification was... Had, didn't have anything to do with disabilities, and it had to do with the, her her own virtue signaling. That's a totally legitimate story. And another, and the the real story here is Kamala Harris colon continues to be bad at politics, continues to not be able to read a room. Kamala Harris, who should be the front runner to be president in twenty twenty four, is bad at this. Uh, and for Brian Stelter, like so, Fox does a, a story about what Twitter said about it. And then Brian Stelter does a segment about what Fox said, about what Twitter said about it. Talk about an empty <laughs> barrel. Come on. I don't know this next story. Oh, lady, <clears throat> my friend. Yes. It's a gift to you. This is my gift to you. Go ahead and open okay, up this Washingtonian it. article. Union Market Union Markets Edens apologizes for anti-Asian email after chef-led petition. Oh, my gosh. Quote. Love you, oolong time, close quote, reads the subject line from a promotional email. Now, love you, long time is a, is a line from Full Metal Jacket used by a Vietnamese prostitute that has been used as a slur against Asian women. I'm sure it has been. I am sure it has been. Here, though, they are taking this to make a joke and say oolong, which is a kind of tea. Which Is that the tea that tastes like dirt? No idea. Not There's a big a, oolong drinker. Abby Black, are you a tea drinker? She's from Buffalo. She she drinks coffee like an American. But they make this joke. The coverage from Washingtonian Magazine is hysterically hysterical. Here we go. 
When Maketo chef Eric Bruner Yang first saw the subject line of a recent Union Market District email newsletter, he immediately sent it to a group chat of other Asian American chefs. None of them could believe it was real. Is that true? And the uh, the the writer here is Grace Dang. Grace Dang, is that true? None of them could believe it was real? I think they probably believed it. Love you, Oolong Time, reads the email subject from Eden's a major developer and landlord, dun, 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 of Union Market. Then she explains this. Phrase is often used to belittle Asian people and contributes to the fetishization of Asian and Asian American women. I Is that bad? That I don't know. I'm not going to delve into that question. And it goes on and on and on. Bruner Yang, along with Moon Rabbit Chef and co-founder of Chefs Against AAPI Hate, Kevin Tien, started a petition in response. So we're now at word 700 of this promotional email with a, I, I guess, taste a little like, I would call it a, a risque joke. I don't, I don't think that, I didn't even think of it as particularly anti-Asian. I thought it would be like making a joke. A lot of things where you're not saying the actual thing, you're saying the other thing. The, the joke is that you're not saying the thing, you're saying the other thing. But whatever, I'm not Asian. If it makes you feel bad, I, I'm not, I wouldn't have made the joke, I hope. But <laughs> this thousand word, 900 word article about the Asian and American Pacific, Asian American and Pacific Islander chef community and a standing up against hate is the most preposterous thing. And I realize how good things must be in America if we have the wealth and the time to employ a human being to write about blibber-blabber stuff like this. If we have the resources... How about to make a petition about this? Well, but I'm saying there wouldn't be... I don't know that there would be a petition. I guess if I'm an editor in a newsroom at the Washingtonian, and somebody's like, ah, boss, we got a hot story coming in. What's going on? Well, see, there was a promotional email from a development company, and they played on a joke from the 1980s that is viewed by some, and I'm already like, I'm going to need you to shut up, leave this newsroom, and go find a story that actually affects people's lives. And look, I, I can't complain about, people are going to write what they write about. And I'm sure I write about things and cover things that people say, why are you wasting your time doing this? The other thing. But this has a consequence. The consequence is by creating the audience for anxiety and umbrage and outrage, creating the demand. The press is the demand for this kind of division. Here is the press fulfilling its role of dividing the country by finding this pointless thing that would have the world would have little noted nor long remembered that should have been cleaned up with one email from this chef to the developer and say, what? Gross. And they, you know what they would have said? Oh, my God, please don't start a petition or do anything to me. I swear, I swear. It was an intern. It was a mistake. I'm sorry. We would have gotten there in one email. Instead, we get a thousand-word article delving into this, and, and the press is the audience for performative outrage, so please stop being an audience for performative outrage people. David Leonhardt. Oh, <laughs> Oh, I shouldn't be so mean. David Leonhardt's a very smart person and has written, done great work on economics, but I couldn't let this one go. So this, this morning we're recording on Thursday, the 4th of August, and his morning email. The Supreme Court 
has lately looked like the most powerful part of the federal government, with the final word on abortion, gun laws, climate policy, voting rights, and more. But the founders did not intend for the court to have such a dominant role. They viewed the judiciary as merely one branch of government. They gave Congress and the president, as well as state governments, various ways to check the court's power and even undo the effects of its rulings. I'm sorry, David Leonhardt. Am I reading something from the Cato Institute in 1985? (laughs) Have you just discovered how conservatives in America felt for the past 50 years, 60 years? Jeebers crow. When Uh, you've got David Leonhardt. Can you imagine actually writing those words? Well, but I, I, I... like seventh grade civics. Let, let me give him the benefit of the doubt to say this. I don't think he ever thought that the Republican position on this was legitimate or sincere. And I imagine that now that he is having the same feelings that Republicans had for the previous 50 years, that he believes his own feelings are sincere. He just so he's his his shock, I think, is rooted in cynicism about how the Republicans feel about this stuff. But I just had to include it because it's such a it's such a duh moment. And you're like, oh, well, may, and maybe the good news is out of all of this that we will have a better Congress. Maybe we will have a less activist Supreme Court and maybe both parties will make Congress great again. And, you know, when you say that phrase, you've all of it, if you say it three times, you've all of in will appear. He will just you summon him into existence. It's like Beetlejuice. It, it really does amuse me that now with a conservative court taking action to return to Congress and to the states these issues, yes. their proper roles, <laughs> yes. that Democrats like David Leonhardt are very exercised very, about judicial is, yes. activism. They yes. have suddenly like come to realize that this is an issue. And a far, um, and a far but I, we should point out, a far, so far, a far less activist court than any of the predecessors from the 20th century. I have, or back to the 1920s, anyway. We are now at the very bottom of where we're on, like our style section. Here. Yes. Oh, this is. Oh, we did it again. We accidentally yeah. had a style section yeah. again. Like we're on like 8:32 here. I love this one. What uh, <laughs> Washington Post headline: A TikTok rival promised millions to black creators. Now some are deep in debt. And I thought, well, this seems like a strange story. I'm interested in you. What What this, is going on? This sounds very Taylor Lorenz. Well, is it, it Taylor Lorenz? It is, in fact. I'm just seeing this now. It is Taylor Lorenz. Oh, so, my gosh. I woo, called so, it. Called so it, baby. Th- so this this because fits. This fits. So hey, she's like kind of TikTok's PR person. Yes. Oh, uh, she. And so this is definitely like knocking down that rival that goosed these black creators. Last fall, she writes, David Warren seemed to be on the verge of a breakthrough with more than a half a million followers on TikTok. Warren, 22, had left Hot Springs, Arkansas for a one-bedroom apartment in Los Angeles near a dance studio where he could attend classes five days a week. Sounds good. Feel like good, good things are happening for him. What happened, though? Warren had the promise of stability in the form of a lucrative year-long deal with Triller a short-form video app that looks and functions similarly to TikTok. He was part of blah, 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 blah. So they promised, in a bid to take on TikTok, to summarize, they promised to offer $14 million to black creators so that they would be racially cool and racially cooler than TikTok, which is owned by, like, China and somebody who makes particle board or something. Like, TikTok is accidentally popular. They're trying to steal their audience. So here's my favorite part. 
Throughout 2020 and 2021, Triller launched luxurious content houses in the Hollywood Hills and inked a partnership with the Sway Boys, a popular collab group. <laughs> A-list TikTok stars were promised up to $10,000 per stream on Triller TV. Triller leased a black Rolls Royce with, all caps, Triller vanity plate for Charlie D'Amelio, TikTok's most followed creator in the United States. Blah, 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 blah. Hey, Taylor Lorenz. Are what are you is is what you're saying that a startup TikTok competitor with a rented Rolls Royce did not follow through on its promises of great <laughs> riches for the people involved? What role does race play here? I don't know. I mean, maybe they were targeted. Be no, dummies. What is this? It's a. It's not a scam. It was a try that somebody made at something. And if you think that the person with the rented house and the rented Rolls Royce is good for $14 million, you are making that, a mistake. That would be on you. Even in Hot Springs, they already know. <laughs> not just even in Hot Springs, definitely in Hot Springs. They know that that is not a person that you say, I feel like this is a long-term, healthy, good bet. I think this is a solid bet. He gave it, they, gave, they were given it a chance. He gave it a chance. It didn't work out. Life is hard when you want to make a living dancing in your house for people on the internet. So it's that time, Chris. Oh, what time is it? It's obsession time. Where we break down the stories that we were obsessed with for the past two weeks. Mine is actually from the past week. And I was legit obsessed with this story. I was texting all, all you guys in this room about it. The date on it is July 30th. So this was over the weekend. This is the kind of thing where I woke up, you know, and I was like, you know, baby gets up early. She goes down for a nap by like 9 a.m. Isn't that the best? And then, I'm, yeah, and then I'm like, you know, reading, having my coffee in bed. And I'm reading this and I was flipping out, like, you know, hitting my husband on the shoulder. Like, I couldn't believe this is a New York Times story. Headline. Before you, before you, before yep, you read yep, it, yep. Just readers, think about how sweet that moment is when the baby goes down. It's the nicest part of the day when your baby still takes a nap in the morning, and there you are with the love of your life, cuddled up. Is the baby sleeping in bed with you guys or in the crib? Oh, in bed with us? No. <laughs> from like, what are we animals? Yeah, from day one in that damn crib. But what a sweet moment, and you're so lucky, and I'm I'm jealous because I'm flipping I out. I'm I'm jealous because those those are the sweet the sweet I didn't I don't really care about babies. I have my baby rankings, top babies in the game. Who you know we and we have some real primo stuff among my friends' kids. But I really love those days with my boys, and I'm so jealous of you. I'm so happy you get to have that time. It is, it's nice. It's really. But nice. anyhow, I'm sorry. I spent my time flipping out over this New York <laughs> Times story. <laughs> Seriously, flipping out. The headline is where'd it go? Oh, how did a two-time killer get out to be charged again at age 83? The subheadline is Marceline Harvey is accused of dismembering a woman in Brooklyn. Whoa. Her life was defined by a tormented relationship with women and herself and a simmering anger. Whoa. And you get into this, I was like, wow, oh my gosh, this woman like killed all these people. And you start reading about how this woman, Marceline, got out of prison on parole in June 2019 and she goes on it two and a half years later to kill a 68 year old woman you're on and on and on and on and you're about wait 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 I'm sorry this person I'm just looking at this story for the first time shot her girlfriend 
1963. Yes. And went to prison. Then got out of prison and stabbed another woman in, in 1985. Yes. Stuffing her corpse in a bag and yes. leaving it in Central Park. This person is paroled. Then paroled in 2019, gets per- out and kills another woman. And kills again. Yes. As in, how old was this person when they killed? 83. A woman Okay, killer. just wait. Just oh, wait. go ahead. Okay. So then you're about five paragraphs into the story. Let, let me count the number of paragraphs. One, two, three, four, five. The sixth paragraph of the story. Decades worth of police documents and court records detail the life of Ms. Harvey, a transgender woman uh, who transitioned at some point after her release from prison. Uh, oh, okay. Central to her tale are more than three decades of parole board minutes obtained through the state's Freedom of Information Law. Yada, yada, yada. So six paragraphs in, you realize... It's a dude yeah, who the, killed his girlfriends, a violent man who killed his girlfriends. The transgender part of this is um, the least interesting component it, totally. of the story. Well, oh, my gosh. This is a very mentally ill person. So then it says, Ms. Harvey, who by her own account struggled with her mental health, said she had to choke down her rage when women challenged her manliness before she transitioned, making fun of her soft voice, for example. That's and, interesting, and that's part of it. But how dare you put this in the seventh paragraph? Oh, my gosh. I was like... A woman killed all these women in this violent way and cut up their bodies in pieces and stuffed them in graves. An 82-year-old woman being a mass (laughs) murderer would... So an 82-year-old man being a mass murderer would be an interesting story. An 82-year-old woman would be like... Wait, then then you get this aside in the Times story. Transgender people are far more likely to become victims of violence, not perpetrators. And data from the National Center for Transgender Equality suggests more than half of transgender people who stay in shelters encounter harassment. Because that comes after a homeless shelter worker and people close to Ms. Layden, that's a victim, question whether, despite her gender identity, Ms. Harvey should have been placed in a homeless shelter for women, given her history of attacking and murdering them. I, the aside about how transgender people are far more likely to become victims of violence rather than perpetrators, it's like, yeah, would you read this and your like your mind would just go to like all transgender people are murderers. Uh, it's just the whole thing is so. You have. Pardon to- my French, but a s s backwards. Yes. Um, no, I think you can say ass backwards. I think that's. A, I think we're, that, so we're we're like a PG eleven, and like none of the victims. I'm sorry, they're dead. They can't be like, no, actually, it was a man who killed me. Right. This is so crazy. If the New York Times wanted to, and I understand why, and probably correct to refer to the suspect by the name that they have chosen for themselves now, and to refer to them by the gender that they believe is theirs. I that's fine. You need to disclaim that in the second paragraph, right? Yeah. You need to yeah, say, exactly. "Hey, just so you knows, the story. It's it, there. It, this is this is not a female at birth woman, and just so you knows, and that's all you need to say about the transgenderism, except for the part where you have to then explain. So, in in between the time of, and I think the part that's in how. Uh, gender dysmorphia may have affected the psyche of the killer and all that stuff can be interesting. But this is a not this is a story about the failure of the criminal justice system, not uh, totally transgenderism. This is a story about how a lovely grandma looking 63 year old uh, Sin Laden of Fort Lee, New Jersey, didn't need to be murdered by this person, yeah. whatever this person's gender was, and this person shouldn't have been out of prison. 
What is your obsession? Keeping it real. That's my obsession. Oh, oh. So, do you ever go through seasons with a book, like where you read a book, you reread it, you hang out with it, you think about it, and it stays with you? Maybe. Okay. All right. So for me, and Abby Black knows this is true, William Manchester, who is definitely right now my favorite historian. I read a lot of history, and he is definitely right now, I'm, I'm in a, it's the summer of Manchester, and I also love Barbara Tuckman. Like, I oh lo- my gosh, my husband loves Barbara Tuckman. I, I She's such a great writer. Loves. Her book about the Zimmerman telegram and the start of America's entry into the First World War is he gold-plated. Loves that. It is a okay. gold-plated book. I need to her get lines, back into that. I her, couldn't. Her mockery of Kaiser Wilhelm. Mwah. Okay. But anyway, I'm in a not only, and we know, I don't actually like, I shouldn't say don't like them. Manchester is most famous for his biographies of Douglas MacArthur, American Caesar, and the three-volume, he didn't finish the third volume before he died. He died only 20 years ago or something, 15 years ago, but on Winston Churchill, The Last Lion, which are very popular, and they're books that you you probably gave one to your dad at some point without even knowing it because it was just one of those like bestseller military history biography, safe for dudes, safe as gifts for dudes. But Manchester wrote a book called A World That Only By Fire, which is as as a medieval and renaissance history, imperfect in its work, but as a philosophical concept about how the modern world became the modern world is brilliant and amazing. And I wrote about it because, and I taught about it at church at Sunday school this week. We did a cool, I was prompted to do it because we had, were having a cool series about books every Christian should read. I, of course, suggested the book that has all of the weird sex stuff of the Borgia Popes in it, which was fun to talk to the ladies in church about. I was like, you may want to skip over some of the couple of chapters in there. You may not want to look at that part. But a very long way of saying, hanging out with Manchester this summer and looking at this book and thinking about this book, Manchester got his start. He was a Marine in the Second World War, badly injured on Okinawa. He came back, finished school, and set out he was to be the world's number one H.L. Mencken fanboy. Do you have H.L. Mencken feelings? No. Don't care? No. I think most of my friends who are journalists love H.L. Mencken. He had some complicated, there's, some, there's a little anti-Semitism here and there. There's obviously, an he's an imperfect vessel but a brilliant writer and a great and a great newsman and, and a wonderful storyteller and all that stuff. I did not know that William Manchester then went on to work at the Baltimore Sun under H.L. Mencken and was a newspaper reporter himself in multiple locations before he became America's foremost historian of his time, most popular historian of his time. And this got me, to, and, and he did all this interesting Newspaper work. And so I started, you see here, I've got my list, and I want our readers to add to it. Great novelists or historians or nonfiction writers, but great writers of books who started out in newsrooms. And Tom Wolfe, Ernest Hemingway, George Orwell, Mark Twain, Joan Didion, Ken Follett, James Baldwin, Truman Capote, and my favorite on the list, E.B. White, and... Please send in, email us at, what's, what where they email us? Wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. So tell us who were the ink-stained wretches that you know about and you love 
who went on to be great authors and people you revere and love to read who made the jump. And one of the downsides to the 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 what happened to the newspaper business is we lost the proving ground for a lot of authors, right? To to train and know Ernest Hemingway's literary style, love it or hate it. He found writing for the Kansas City Star, sending dispatch first for the Toronto Star and then the Kansas City Star, sending dispatches back from Europe covering peace conferences and stuff. His the, the Tom Wolf. Do you like Tom Wolf? Love. Love. Oh my gosh. Okay. Love. Agree. Tom Wolf. I told Abby I, that in her life she has to read Bonfire of the Vanities. No, uh, you need to read I Am Charlotte Simmons. Oh, well, for a woman in college, I Am Charlotte you Simmons. Amaze balls. But Bonfire of the Vanities. Actually, I was just at dinner the other week and talking to one of your colleagues. Um, El Dispacho? Um, no, at AI <laughs> okay. about conservative novels. And I said that I think I Am Charlotte Simmons is a conservative yep. novel. Not, okay, the message is conservative, but it's a conservative novel because it explodes the idea. Tom Wolfe like so inhabited the psyche of a young college woman. To a creepy degree. It explodes the yes. idea that you can't write about an African-American if you're not an African-American. You can't write about a woman if you're a woman. You can't speak for this if you're not, you know, you have to be the black, gay, this, that, the other, and you can't know unless you're that. And he, like, exploded that. It was like, you know, an old white man actually can come to understand the experience of a young college woman, and I think that's a very, like, conservative point of view these days. I know this doesn't help Tom Wolfe, And I think one of the reasons, by the way, that he fell into critical disfavor was that I think most of his books are conservative, right? Yeah. Most of his books are about the Americanism, Back to Blood, which he wrote about Miami, which I love and I think was vastly underrated, talks about the toxicity of identity politics and that stuff, A Man in Full, about race and upper upper crust Atlanta, and definitely, who's the hero (laughs) of Bonfire of the Vanities, a bond trader who <laughs> a bond trader who is the target of a race mob. And Sherman McCoy is an unlikely hero to be sure, but by the end of that book you are rooting for Sherman McCoy 100%. And here I'll I'll close this cuz I know we've got to move on. And please do send in your proposals on the journalist to author stuff. But I even like Tom Hanks portrayal. I even like the movie. And I know everybody's going to hate me for saying that, but I love Tom Hanks portrayal in that movie. And it's you have to forget about the book to enjoy the movie. But I think he and Melanie Griffith are great in that movie. I think it's wonderful. And so there, I said it. Come at me, bro. It is time for my favorite part of the week. Which is reader mail and several, or listener mail, we should call it. Several listeners wrote in, Chris, chief among them, Michael, to let us know that New Yorker archive editor Aaron Overby, who had gone on like a 2000 tweet thread about how David Remnick, New Yorker editor, inserted error into her copy and then like instigated instigated an investigation into her. She was fired. Good. And of course, she had a many tweet thread about it. But I think it is it is <laughs> the, the latest effect. instance of the establishment striking back. She was fired July 25th, so this was while we were off. She tweeted, so the ad New Yorker has fired me, effective immediately. 
And many, many, she goes on for many, many tweets about this. But it is interesting. I think we're seeing the tide turn a little bit with these like institutions trying to assert themselves over these like lunatic employees. Pen- pendulum swinging back. Yeah. And then we got a wonderful note from Sandra who writes, I must agree with Chris. The sexification mm. of female mm. newscasters is tacky. I stopped watching Fox News for many reasons, not the least of which was my inability to take any news or commentary seriously from someone who was dressed for a cocktail party. CNN apparently Boom. didn't learn its lesson from their gross promotion of Paula Zahn back in 02. Maybe I'm just a cranky old lady. Ooh. I'm really enjoying the podcast. Keep up the good Keep up the good work. Marion R? You know, no, no that are... was from Sandra. Oh, that's from Sandra? And uh, I have to say... No men wrote to say that they men are lazy. Do not we don't like take time. The sexification. No, we, we don't of send thank you notes either. We don't. We don't do a lot of things. But Sandra, you are right. That is a sick burn on the Paula Zahn pullback from O2. I am with you and for you. Fight the power. Okay. Oh wait, before we leave, reader yes. mail. I want to give a shout out to John and Sarah Ellis who are remnant, or not remnant, <laughs> who are ink-stained wretches, super fans, who I met while I was in West Virginia. They're attorneys in West Virginia. The lovely people came up, and I showed you their picture. I took yes. a selfie with them as evidence yes. that we have fans. So it was really nice to meet them, and it's always nice to meet our fellow wretches out there. So thanks. And it is now time for Chris's favorite item of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice, but Chris leads by example. In continuing my tirade against anti-Appalachian sentiment, Lexington, so you saw the tragic floods in Kentucky, I know. I uh, saw. And really devastating. And this is part of life in Appalachia because these valleys are narrow. These hollers are narrow when you have massive rains like we did. And this has been part of life there as long as people have been living there. The water comes with such force and it happens suddenly. It's not like the rising of the Mississippi River. It's sudden and people die. And it's really sad. And it's just been part of life in Appalachia as long as people have lived there. And here, so we'll put it in the show notes, the piece from the Lexington Herald Leader. Headline, some suggest flood victims got what they voted for. Kentuckians aren't having any of that. And shout out to Austin Horn, the author of this piece. But also I want to give a shout out to, and I want to find her to give her credit, writing in the independent East Tennessee native Skylar Baker Jordan, which is a correct, which is definitely a correct Appalachian name, said, and on social media, people are mocking the poorest residents of my home state for voting in Republicans like Mitch McConnell as an Appalachian Democrat, I can barely believe what I'm seeing from people who should be on the same side as me. And I just, I want to shout out that story, but really for the, being a West Virginian, when when bad things happen in West Virginia, you're going to be the butt of jokes and people are going to make fun of you. And I just, I, I just send some love to the Herald leader for sticking up for the right stuff, sticking up for your people. Don't take that guff off of nobody. My favorite item was from the Philly Inquirer, which apparently this has all been public, but I did not know it. And I thought it was a very fun item, a very beacony item that the Philly Inquirer did about John Fetterman, which, uh, you know, he's like presents himself as this everyman in a very convincing way. But he apparently lived off his parents until well into his 40s. So the piece says, 
Public records show, and Fetterman has openly acknowledged, that for a long stretch lasting well into his 40s, his main source of income came from his parents, who gave him and his family $54,000 in 2015 alone. That was part of the financial support his parents regularly provided when Fetterman's only paying work was $150 a month uh, as mayor of Braddock, a job he held from his mid-30s until he turned 49. He lived in an industrial-style loft he purchased from his sister for $1 after she paid $70,000 for it six years earlier. Good coverage of a Senate candidate. Good good, good to scope, but many, child, uh, many children of privilege are in the United States yes. Congress. Many, oh, yes. many children of privilege are in the United States Congress, and they've probably figured to put them someplace where they couldn't do, do any harm. <laughs> oh, yes. That is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, please email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts with an S dot com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for wretches and leave us a five-star review. Do it. Do it.